Daniel back. Yes, back with us. Yes, we're so happy to have you and all of you that are joining in on the worship team this morning. So glad to have you. Again, wel welcome to everyone. Um, as, as most of you know, uh, we began two weeks ago uh, with a series on the vision of Bethel Bible Church uh, two weeks ago, Bethel's vision. Uh, that vision being building leaders, growing communities, and living generously. And so then we began two weeks ago with growing communities. We talked about that and we looked at the implications of that and the importance of that for us as New Testament believers and the New Testament church. And from Ephesians chapter 4, we walked through what Paul had to say about growing communities. Uh, and then uh, after that, we covered on last week building leaders, building leaders on last week in from 1 Timothy as we uh, prepared to install, like that we did at the end of our service on last week, the new Bethel Hope deacons and elders. Uh, but I told you on last week, and I'll reiterate again today, that that message was not just for the deacons and elders, it was for all of us. Because all of us that are part of the body of Christ have been called to a level of leadership because all of us have influence. Isn't that right? And so at the end of last week's service, we did that. We installed uh, most of our new deacons and elders, <laughs> most of them. We did have one who was traveling who wasn't able to be with us on last week. And so we're going to do his installation that would be uh, none other than He's looking down. He's trying to be humble. None other than Dr. Jerry Putman, who will come before us today and be installed as one of our new elders here at Bethel Hope. And so hang around for the end after I finish up with all I have to say. And I know I probably got a lot to say, right? But we're going to finish it at some point. And then at the end of it, <laughs> y'all hanging there with me. Uh, we're going to call Jerry up, and we're going to call Jeff up, and we're going to call Sam up, and we're going to call Chris up, and Warren's out of town traveling today. Uh, we're going to call all those brothers up, and we're going to lay hands on Jerry, and we're going to install him as our, uh, officially install him as one of our latest and newest elders here at Bethel Hope. So we'll look forward to doing that. But today, today we'll talk about the final part, the, the final segment, the final section of Bethel's vision, that is living generously, living generously. Y'all say it with me, living, oh man, y'all still asleep. I need you to wake up. You're going to have to wake up because you know I need you to talk back to me. So let's see if we can try that one more time. Living, that's a whole lot better. Generously, now you should have put a lot of emphasis on that word, amen. <laughs> living generously, we're going to talk about about that this morning, the final part of Bethel's vision, living generously. And so if you would, if you have your Bibles, would you open them to the book of 1 Peter? 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll read verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And when you get there, you'll find the following words. As I read from the English Standard Version of God's Holy Word, here's what the Bible says, what Peter writes. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. 
Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord for the people of God. Living generously. Before I jump into this, I want to say to those of you that are joining us online, I want you that if you, if you are joining us online, if, you, if you're getting close to feeling comfortable, I encourage you and invite you to come out and be with us on next week. In the, in the weeks following, we, we encourage everyone to begin to come back. Uh, we are practicing all of the precautions and we're taking extra care and all that. So if you're feeling comfortable, come on back out and join us. If you're online today, though, engage with us. Uh, we will engage back with you. Let us know that you're there. Give me, if I, every now and then, every, now, every blue moon, I say something right that, that, that's, that's based in Scripture and, and that, that is in accordance with the Word of God. And every now and then, that, it may not happen today, I'm just saying. It may not be until, but if it just so happens that it happens today, an amen which surely would be all right. You know, I don't know, John, if it'll happen today, but if it does both online and in person. Y'all y'all know I love to hear your amens. <laughs> living generously, living generously. Uh, many years ago, I, I know it may not look like it now, but many years ago, Jeff, I played football. I was a quarterback for the John Tyler Lions. I'm not going to tell you what year. It was, just know that it was many moons ago. But I played under the tutelage of great coaches like Bill Parks, Jimmy Franklin. Y'all know anything about James Smitty Smith? Some of those guys. Under their tutelage, I played. One of the things that we did was we continued a tradition that had been started years earlier by legendary co coaches like Corky Nelson. In, here, here's what it looked like. In every game, at the beginning of the fourth quarter, and I believe they, even, I believe they, they are continuing this tradition even now at the school that was formerly known as John Tyler, now Tyler High. They are continuing this tradition, but in every game, at the beginning of the fourth quarter, all the players on the field, on the bench, and all the coaches, everybody that had on blue and white, would raise the number four with both hands and chant, four, 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 four. And I know y'all waiting on me to tell you what that means. And why we did that? Well, I'm going to do it right now. This signified that the end of the game was approaching. And after a long, hard-fought battle, every player needed to now focus like they had never focused throughout the course of the game. 
Every player, every coach, every manager, every water boy, every, everybody needed to dig deep and give it all that they had because with every tick of the clock thereafter, the deafening and decisive blast of the buzzer would grow nearer and nearer. And there would be no turning back once the buzzer sounded or the horn blew. It would be all over. And so four, four, four meant the end is near. Focus like you've never focused before. That's what it meant. It meant that the whole, the whole approach to the game changes in the fourth quarter. The whole approach to the game changes in the fourth, in the fourth quarter because of the increased sense of urgency. That's why we did it. Uh, never was this more evident than on November the 26th, 1994. Long after I left, I ain't going to tell you when I left, but I was long gone on this date. Uh, I, had, I had been gone for a while, uh, a little while, <laughs> just a little while. <laughs> November 26, 1994, never was this concept more evident than on that day. Because it was on that day at the now demolished Texas Stadium in Irving. The John Tyler faced off against Plano East in the 5A Region 2 Division 2 semifinal football game. The game drew national attention in the United States due to its wildly improbable and tumultuous inning, ending, with seven touchdowns scored in the last four and a half minutes. And it won the 1995 Showstopper of the Year ESPY Award on ESPN. It has been billed by many sportscasters even today, both in Texas and in the rest of the United States, as the greatest high school football game ever played in the world. And I had the privilege of being in the stands to witness that momentous occasion. Both teams had, just for those of you that don't remember this or are not familiar with it, both teams had a 12-0 record coming into the game. Plano East was ranked number two in the state of Texas, uh, and John Tyler was ranked number three. The first quarter had ended in a 7-7 tie, but at halftime, the Lions had a 21-14 lead. In the third quarter, each team kicked the field goal, bringing the score to 24-17. But then on the sidelines, I remember seeing the players, the coaches, the managers, the water boy, everybody holding up those fours as the fourth quarter started. And I could hear them, and I was up there in the stands chanting with them, four, four, that means you better focus. You need to, you need to really concentrate because the end of the game is near. The Lions then scored a field goal early in the fourth quarter to make the score 27 to 17. Towards the end of the fourth quarter, as the Panthers were first and goal uh, on their own goal line, getting ready to score, the ball was stripped from their quarterback, and the resulting fumble was returned 90 yards for a touchdown and a 34 to 17 lead for John Tyler with only four minutes and 24 seconds left in the game. 
on the fourth play uh, of the Panthers' next possession, another fumble was returned 36 yards for a touchdown, giving the John Tyler Lions a seemingly insurmountable 41-17 lead with only three minutes and three seconds to go in the game. People start leaving. In fact, I thought about leaving because we were celebrating. It was over. People were heading up the stairs in Texas Stadium. Many of y'all don't remember Texas Stadium. had a hole in the roof. And people were, I remember playing there when I was in high school many years before, not many years, a few years before this game. But people were walking up the steps, Sam. They were leaving because it was 41 to 17 with three minutes to go in the game. And they thought, surely this game is over. However, on a two-play 70-yard drive, the Panthers scored a touchdown to bring the score to 41 to 23 with only 236 left on the clock. The Panthers then successfully executed, successfully, three onside kicks in a row in succession. You know what the odds of that are? The odds of just getting one are astronomical. They successfully executed three onside kicks in a row, recovering the ball each time and then driving down the field for a touchdown on each one of those onside kick recoveries. First touchdown drives took just six plays. The second drive took six plays. The final one was completed in just three plays, giving the Panthers a 44-41 to 41 lead with only 24 seconds left on the clock. You can just see the people that had started to, on their way to their cars, coming back in, some of them with tears in their eyes, <laughs> including me. Although I was still in my seat, I was just flabbergasted. How could Coach Allen Wilson let these dudes do this to us? What's going on? Now? Come on, man, it's four, it's four. But it wasn't over because Plano East lined up. And rather than kicking the ball out of bounds, they performed and executed a regular kickoff. And Roderick Dunn caught the ball on the three-yard line. I remember it like it was yesterday. I almost lost all of my mind. The mind I had left, I almost lost it all. Because Dunn, who was the same player who had fumbled two of the three onside kicks and was primarily the cause for Plano East getting the ball, Dunn catches the kickoff on the three-yard line and returns it 97 yards for a touchdown. His only touchdown that he had ever gotten in his entire time playing football, 97 yards, which made the, fine, the score 48 to 41 with 11 seconds. Plano East gets the ball, throws the interception. The game is finally over. It's over. The Lions went on to win later the 5A Division II state championship that year. After this monumental game, certainly in this game, 
there were many ups and downs, many highs and lows. But the imminency of the buzzer brought out the best in both teams. Because they realized and recognized that it was four and that the end of the game was imminent. Both teams gave it all that they had. So much so that it was a shame that somebody had to lose. But it was all right with me that it was Plano East. <laughs> Somebody had, but they gave it everything they had because they recognized that time was running out. They gave it their all. This is essentially Peter's message in this part of his letter. It's essentially his message. Here's his message. The imminence of the buzzer should bring out the best in you or the best in me or the best in us. Because I don't know if you recognize it or realize it or not, uh, yet or not, but the buzzer is imminent. What's the buzzer? We'll talk about it in a minute. It's not the end of a football game. It's not the seconds ticking off the clock at Texas Stadium. It's not that. The buzzer in this case is something totally different. Paul, uh, Peter's going to unpack it for us in just a minute. Uh, it's his message, though. It's, it, it's his message. Peter, Peter, Peter is writing to believers who are scattered around Asia Minor, scattered around the world. He calls them exiles. They have come to faith in Christ, most of them. They have, they have been saved, and now they find themselves out of step with the world around them. Uh, they are in the world, but they are not of the world. And the world around them, in it, they are experiencing difficulties. It's a hard place to live. Does any of this sound familiar? All of us all better relate to that. We're in the world. We're not of the world. We're living in this world, but we're not of this world, and we're living in difficult days. No matter how you define that, <laughs> amen, somebody, no matter, no matter how you see that, no matter what your perspective of difficulty is, we are indeed living in hard times. I know it's been harder in history, but still, it's still, these are still difficult days. It's a hard place to live. Things around them don't seem to be getting any better for the people that are the recipients of Peter's letter. It doesn't, it doesn't seem, to, in fact, it seems as though things are getting worse. I told you when I started that if I said something that sounded like it might be true, you ought to give me a... I said, but the people that were the recipients of Peter's letter, things were not getting better. In fact, it seemed as if things were getting worse. Thank you, thank you. I'm just saying that. You all may relate to that, right? And so it seemed like things were getting worse. Many of them are experiencing suffering. All kinds of suffering, suffering because of their faith, suffering because of poverty, suffering because family and friends they love are sick or have died. This is what was going on in Peter's day. And Peter is reminding them in this life as a believer, there are seasons that are hard, seasons that are lonely, discouragement seems overwhelming. It's hard to fight for your faith. So he writes to them to encourage them. To remind them this one thing, keep fighting. Keep fighting. Don't, don't give up the fight. Keep fighting for your faith. He writes to remind them of that. Uh, and so to this point in this letter, 
Peter has spoken of the blessings which await believers and the judgment stored up for unbelievers. For the believer, he has highlighted such things as in chapter 1, verses 1 through, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, a living hope. Then he reminds them in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, of the salvation of their souls. And he says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then in chapter 1, verses 7 and verse 13, he reminds them about grace to be brought at the revelation of Christ. And this is what he says. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 of chapter 1 says this, Therefore, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he reminds them of uh, the fact they are obtained, they have obtained a blessing. So in chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then we get to chapter 4, and in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, he does what Paul does in Philippians. He reminds them they ought to have the mind of Christ, right? He says you should have the mind of Christ. And so in chapter 1, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Paul says it a different way. He says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. But Peter says, for, who's, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is what brings, this is what brings us to where we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, this progression of, of, of revelatory information that Paul, Peter shares with the recipients of this letter. Then we get to chapter 4, verse 7, the passage that I just read with you or for you. And Peter reminds them and us that time is running out. We are in the fourth quarter. And then he outlines for them the way this truth should manifest itself in our day-to-day living. It's a reality. It's fact that we are. I, I, I mean, I don't know how long, but we are in the fourth quarter. We know that, right? So here's what he says in, chap, in, in, in verse 7. He says this. In, chap, in verse 7, he says this. The end of all things is at hand. That's what he said. He said the end of all things is at hand. What, what's he talking about? He's, talk, he, he's speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. When the event uh, that's on the horizon. The reason 
the end is near is that the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has inaugurated the last days. Christ can return, and he will return. He can return. I don't know. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I got this great prophecy. <laughs> not going to do that. Y'all would run me out of here if I told you. I know exactly when he's coming. I would expect you to run me. If I told you, I, I can tell you exactly. I don't know when it's going to happen. Watch this. It could, be, it could be 500 years from now. It could be five minutes from now. It could be five seconds from now. It could be five days. I don't know, but I know this. The, the clock is ticking and the buzzer is imminent. And at some point, time's going to run out. And that's all Peter is saying. Peter's saying that we are in those days. Love what Alexander McLaren has to say about it. He talks about how the early church viewed this event, uh, their perspective on the event. This is what McLaren says. He says, the primitive church thought more about the second coming of Christ than about death or heaven. They were not looking for a cleft in the ground called the grave, but a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were not watching for the undertaker, before the upper taker. That's what, they, that, that, that's what their minds were fixed on. They, as soon as Jesus ascended, they were immediately thinking, the clock's running out and he's coming back. Knowing his return was imminent, Jesus' disciples, uh, his, knowing his return is imminent, Jesus' disciples are to be ready, that's us, to be ready and watchful and found doing things he has given us to do. Peter reiterates these same principles in our text and actually spells out those things which should, we should be found doing when our Lord returns. That's what he's getting ready to do. He's getting ready to tell us what we should be doing right now. He begins by reminding us what we must not, that we must not lose our heads. We, we must not lose our self-control. Look at what he says. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. It means don't lose control of yourself. Don't allow yourself to be influenced by anything other than the Holy Spirit. Don't allow yourself to be tossed to and fro and driven by any and every wind and wave of doctrine. Don't do that. Keep your And so you know what the fourth quarter signifies? It signifies uh, passion and focus. It does not signify panic. Doesn't mean that we run around like chickens with our head cut off, heads cut off and give up on life because we think time is running out. No, it says that we ought to be self-controlled and sober-minded and clear-headed and clear of thought and clear of mind and passionate about serving God and passionate about doing the things he's getting ready to tell us about right after this. That's what, that's what Peter reminds We must get our heads on straight and think in accordance with divine revelation. We must not be oblivious to the times in which we live. Can't just bury your head in the sand. There's too, way too much going on to bury your head in the sand today. On August the 30th, 2020, you need to be, your eyes need to be, you need to be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. <laughs> you know, you, you got to know what's happening. And, 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 and when you do, keep a clear mind. Don't panic. Our clear-headedness enables us. Here's what it says at the end of, of, of verse 7. It says this. It says, for the sake of your prayers. 
right? So when we do that, when we have a sober mind, when we have self-control, it allows us to pray properly. It leads us to a proper prayer life. It prepares us to commune with God because aside from that, we cannot. You know what your prayer life would sound like if you were not sober-minded? If you didn't have self-control, you know what the prayer life, what prayers would sound like? It would be all about me, myself, and I. It would be all about what, God, what have you done for me lately? It would be all about, God, come and see about me. God, give me. God, do that. It would be all about that. Peter says, that's not what, it, what happens. When our minds are sober and we are, we are in, uh, self-controlled, it leads us to a proper prayer life. Then Peter argues that living faithfully in difficult and urgent times means that one must commit to living generously. So he lays it out in verse 7. He says, listen, listen, players on the team. There's a lot of definitions. I better clarify that. <laughs> uh, listen, I'm, let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me pause here, press pause. I'm referring back to my illustration. <laughs> All right, I need to make that disclaimer. <laughs> you know, some of y'all hear that word, you know, your mind start running. Yeah, no, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about players on a football team. <laughs> right? <It's, laughs> so this, this, Paul argues this. He says, uh, it's the fourth quarter, and because it is uh, 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 athletes, let me use that word, <laughs> participants in this game, because it is, here are your instructions. And he's getting ready to do it right now in the following verses, in verses 8 through 11. Here's what he's going to lay out. He's going to lay out for us, Candace, that what we ought to be doing from henceforth and forevermore is living generously. That's what he's going to say. Living generously because the clock is ticking. Uh, I love what Calvin Coolidge says. He says this, no person was ever honored for what he received. Honor has been the reward for what he gave. No person has been honored for what he's received. And then, then the writer of Proverbs says this in Proverbs 21, 26, the righteous giveth and spareth not. The righteous giveth and spareth not. And so Peter says, here's the Here's the formula. Here, here are the marching orders. In these last days, live generously. So then, what does that look like? Well, he helps us beginning in verse 8. Because first thing he talks about is generosity and love. Generosity and love. Look at what it says in verse 8. Above all, you can really stop right there. You ought to put a pen right there. You ought to highlight those two words in your Bible. You ought to underline them because it says that what comes after that is of utmost importance. It goes ahead of everything, <laughs> right? He says, above all, keep now. Let me say this. It goes right in line with loving God because the greatest two commandments are what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might, all your mind, all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that what the word says? I thought I told y'all in the beginning, if I said anything that sounded like it was true, it might not happen to tomorrow, but I thought that might have been Scripture. And the Word says that we ought to love our neighbor. So, so Peter says this, above everything else, 
He says, this is priority. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That's what he says. There ought to be generosity in our love towards one another. I love what Real Howe says about it. He says this, we, we too often love things and use people when we should be using things and loving people. Uh, that, that, that's oftentimes, that oftentimes fits what we do and who we are. Uh, but Paul, uh, Peter says, I don't know why I keep calling him Paul. I'm stuck back on 1 Timothy and Ephesians, but we're in 1 Peter today. Y'all have to remind me every now and then, right? I told you it was a long time ago when I was at John Ty. It's been, anyway. <laughs> uh, he, he says this, above all, right, perseverance in love for our fellow believers and people in general, not just our fellow believers, but people in general, should be a matter of the highest priority for us above all. Loving people should be a matter of the highest priority. Um, John Jenkins, who is the president of Notre Dame, recently responded uh, to some comments made by Lou Holtz. And I'm not going to get into where he made them or what he said and all that. Many of you probably already know. But here's what, here's what Jenkins says in response to Lou Holtz. He says this, and it fits what we're talking about. Here's what he says. He says, in this fractious time, let us remember that our highest calling is to love. Let me say that again. Let me quote John Jenkins one more time. Because no matter what the context is, no matter... No matter that his statement was, was accurate and valid, here's what he says. In this fractious time, let us remember that our highest calling is to love. Rather than allowing hard times to produce contention, strife, and self-protection, we should continue to give ourselves sacrificially to others. In fact, the strongest evidence of love is sacrifice. I'm going to say that one more time. The strongest evidence of love is sacrifice. I know it's true because the Bible tells me so. John 3.16. Y'all help me with it. For God, that he, he, so he so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? He gave everything, right? He gave everything. He gave his only begotten son to whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The strongest evidence of love is sacrifice. And then it was Paul Tillich who said this. He said the first duty, if that's the strongest evidence of love, the first duty of love is to listen. First duty of love is to listen. I know that sounds elementary and simple, but I think we miss the concept often. We don't really understand what that means. The first duty of love is to listen. Listening doesn't mean obeying. It means making a true effort to hear and understand what the other person is saying and feeling. That's what listening is. Listening is. It doesn't necessarily mean you agree. It doesn't mean you obey, whatever, obey everything they say. But it says that you make an effort to understand what a person is, what they're, where they're coming from and their feelings in the matter. That's love, Right? Think how much better relationships would be if people actually took time, took the time and put in the effort to listen to one another. We've gotten way past that. Nobody listens. Everybody wants their point to be valid and true. 
They want to argue and debate their point until the cows come home. <laughs> Dig in on it, right? Uh, that, that, that's not love. Whether you agree or not, love says I'm willing to listen to you. Amen, somebody. I, I give you that much respect that I'm willing to listen. How much better would our relationships be if we did that? Listening is an act of love and respect. I got some more Bible for you that helps me <laughs> argue that point. Y'all want to hear it? James chapter 1 verse 19 says this, Wherefore, my brethren, let every man be swift to, eat, to hear. Let every man be swift to hear. You know the rest of it. Slow to speak, slow to hang out, slow to wrath. All. But first thing is swift to hear. I have to extend my ear to you. The, the respect that I, that, I, that I offer you is that I, that I should offer you is that I am willing to listen to you. Peter has already challenged his readers to this kind of constant and intense love in chapter 1. It's in chapter 1, verse 22 of 1 Peter when he says this, Having purified your souls, your obedience to the truth for a sincere Brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He's already began the conversation. In chapter 1, Peter can call uh, for a persevering love because we are born for an eternal seed, born of an eternal seed. And thus our love should likewise be long-lived and not just fair-weather sentimentality. It has to be able to endure. Now, in chapter 4, Peter gives us the reason love must be a matter of the highest priority. Here's what he says. Love covers a multitude of sins. This is not a new principle. It's all throughout your Bible. Uh, in Old Testament and New Testament, Proverbs 10, 12 says this. Hatred stirs up, rife, uh, stirs up strife, but love covers all transgression. James 5.20 says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's a concept we see all throughout Scripture, and Peter reiterates it here. What does Peter mean by this statement, though? It's, a, it's kind of a controversial statement. It, there's many different understandings and meanings of uh, uh, interpretations of what Peter is saying. Uh, here simply is this. Uh, love is... A love that is not blind, but sees and accepts the faults of others. This is what it means by love covering a multitude of sins. It's, it sees and accepts that all of us are, are flawed. None of us are perfect. But I love you even in your flaw and in your imperfection. And you love me even with my flaws and imperfections. And love will help us overcome all of that. Isn't that right? So, being generous with our love is only possible because we have been loved perfectly by God. That's the only way we can, it's possible, is that we have to realize that God has loved us perfectly. And because of that, we have to be generous with our love. It has to be generosity in that. But then next, he talks about generosity and love. And then in, in verse 9, generosity and kindness. Look at what verse 9 says. It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is kindness. It's opening up what you have to others. 
open up our lives to others. That's what hospitality and kindness is. It means that I'm willing to be open to you. I'm willing to share with you what I have. You, if I have something, you're welcome to it. If, if, if you need somewhere to sleep, you can come sleep at my house. If you need some, some food to eat, I'll share that with you. Uh, if you need to know my story, I'll share that. If whatever it is that I have, you're welcome to it because I want to be a person of kindness and hospitality. We have to be generous with that. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says about it. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. When we extend hospitality, we give evidence to our own faith when we do that. And we do what is pleasing to the Lord. We may even learn we may learn that one of those we entertained was an angel. We may learn that. So Peter says generosity and love, generosity and kindness, and then lastly he talks about generosity and grace. It's in verses, in verses 10 and 11. Here's what they say. As each of you has received a, a gift, use it to serve one another. A lot of one another's in this whole passage, as good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God, the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, right? The generosity, and we must have this generosity. Peter talks about spiritual gifts here, uh, and spiritual gifts are gracious in nature, in other words, God has extended them and gifted us with them, although we didn't deserve them. They are gracious in nature, the spiritual gifts that we have. Uh, the various spiritual gifts are given to Christians as a stewardship. He gives us to them so that we can steward them, manage them properly. Everything, every gifting that you have has been given to you, and you didn't deserve to get any of it. And because it's been given to you, the responsibility is that we manage it the way, in a way that would please God. This means each Christian must not only know his gifts, but he or she must develop and use them to the greatest possible extent, watch this, for the glory of God and the good of his people. That's what Peter says. He says, you got You've, got, you've, been, you've been gifted with the grace of gifts. Be generous with it, right? Don't, don't, don't hold it. Don't hoard it. If, something, if God's given you something, bless others with it, with it. Spiritual gifts are not given to us primarily for our own benefit and edification, but as the means of edifying and blessing others. That's why we have them. So we're talking about living generously, and God wants us to live that way, live generously that others might be blessed. So let me share this with you and, and, and lift this request up to God. May God help us to grasp a sense of urgency concerning his coming because he is coming. One way or the other. I mean, he's either coming to us or we're going to him. One way or the other, it's going to be a coming. <laughs> Isn't it? Clock's going to run out at some point. And, and here, here's the wise thing to do. Be prepared 
for that moment. And how do we prepare for that moment? It, we prepare for that moment, Robbie, in how we live our lives day to day right now. May he give each of us a commitment to conduct our lives accordingly, looking for that day with the commitment to living generously so that others may be blessed. The uh, worship team sung a song earlier by William McDowell, and I think that song illustrates this point quite accurately. Here's what McDowell says. You heard it sung earlier, uh, Michael and uh, Daniel and all the others did a wonderful job in singing this song. I wish I could, I'd try it, but y'all wouldn't like it. <laughs> so I'm just going to read it. Can I just read it? <laughs> y'all, give, give, y'all let me just read it. Here's what McDowell, I mean, you've already heard it earlier. Let me read it to you again. Here's what McDowell says. He says, I give myself away so you can use me. That's what he says. I get, he says, here I am, Lord. Here I stand. Right? It, that, that, that's, what, that's what our confession, our profession has to be. Here I am. Here I stand. Lord, your, my life is in your hands, right? Uh, I'm longing to see your desires revealed in me. I give myself away. And then McDowell says, take my heart, take my life as a living sacrifice. All my dreams, all my plans, Lord, I place them in your hands. My life. Is not my own. To you, I belong. I give myself 